This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This is episode one of Strength Check. Thank you to everybody who listened to episode zero last week. We had never planned to put that out into the world, but my producer Mark and I were so happy with how it turned out, especially as an episode zero, you know, that we decided to put it out there. I'm the kind of person who could easily have sat on that for months and months, thinking about what I could do better, hemming and hawing and going back and forth and wringing my hands over making it perfect. But I'm trying to do better about that, so you guys got episode zero. So thank you to those of you who listened to it. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you stick with us for the entire run of this project and see where we go. So like I said in episode zero, the purpose of Strength Check is to talk about mental health, is to talk about victimization, is to talk about crime, and is to talk about ongoing projects that I've got going on here, especially our Play for Progress program, where we're going to be using Dungeons and Dragons as a way to help young people who have experienced all kinds of different trauma and help them learn how to trust again. Tonight, we're not gonna talk about Play for Progress. Um, I wanna hit pause on that a little bit until I have more to share with you guys. Instead, I'm gonna tell you about the ghosts that I live with. Yeah, so before I tell you about the ghosts, let me give you a little bit of context here, right? So I am a criminologist by trade, which means that I work at a university and my job is to go in and teach classes about how awful the world is and how people do all sorts of terrible things to each other in all kinds of really creative and imaginative ways. Um, as if there are people who didn't know that the world is awful already, my job is to go in there and make sure that they come out knowing full well that people can do terrible things to each other for all kinds of stupid reasons. And one of the things that I've realized in the course of, my, of all the classes that I've taught in the course of my career is that we don't really care about the people so much as we care about their bodies, you know? We care about whether or not somebody is in prison. We care about what they're putting into their body, drugs or alcohol, legal or illegal, underage or of age. We care about who they're having sex with, if they're having sex at all. We care about where they live, how they live, not so much. We care about if they're working, but not what they're doing at their job or what kind of contribution that job is, is making to the world, just that their body is doing something. And so taking that realization and, and putting it with the idea that I have lots of students, and I myself am interested in some of this too, lots of students though, who are interested in serial killers or who want to talk about famous mobsters or these major cases that have happened in the course of American history. Um, the whodunits, the why did they do it, how did they do it, all of the blood and the guts and the gore. Like, I get why people are interested in that, but again, 
we only really seem to care about that because something happened to somebody's body, and not because something happened to a person. So, one of the things that I've become interested in is the history of crime in America, at least modern America. And I've been working on a project that focuses on crime in the 20th century. And I want to better understand how things happened. Or maybe I want to understand why things happened. And you can't really think about like the war on drugs without going back to prohibition. And you can't think about prohibition without everything that led up to prohibition. Right? So there's lots of threads to unravel here. And in doing this, I have run into case after case after case, story after story, again, of people doing things to each other in all sorts of terrible ways, killing each other and hurting each other and destroying each other's bodies because they can, I guess. And I share these stories in class, but we're just concerned about the bodies. So, in the course of working on this project, I have started to think about them as ghosts. And so when I tell you that I live with ghosts, or that I'm being haunted by ghosts, what I really mean is that I have kind of taken on this responsibility, I think, of the people that I'm writing about to remind you and remind whoever reads this book when it ever comes out that they were more than just somebody who died in some horrible, painful way. That not only did they lose their life, but the people around them, their friends, their family members, there's a good possibility that this tragedy is something that defined the rest of their lives as well. And we don't ever really think about that. We only care about the body. So I'll give you an example. The Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short. Elizabeth Short died in January of 1947. She was found basically cut in half by a, a woman walking through a Los Angeles neighborhood who thought that her body was a mannequin that somebody had just dumped in a yard. And she called the police because she was worried that some kids might come along and find it and get into some sort of trouble with it. And the police got there and saw this cloud of black flies hanging over her body and realized that they had found something much more uh, awful than a department store mannequin. So for the first few days or weeks of the investigation, it was this big mystery of who... Who could have done this to somebody who was so, who, in their mind at least, was so innocent, who maybe represented the all-American girl, right? Her body was identified in the first use of what today we would call a fax machine. They fingerprinted her, sent the fingerprint to the FBI headquarters, and she had been fingerprinted before. She had worked on a military base, uh, a naval base, I think during World War II, and she had gotten arrested for underage drinking um, while she was there. So there were two copies of her prints on file. I believe it was the copy of her prints, though, that she had to give when she took the job at the base that the FBI had. And so that was the first use of this technology. Uh, random piece of trivia there for you, I guess. 
the initial investigation is all about who could have done this terrible thing to what was undoubtedly this innocent, pure girl. But once they found out that her name was Elizabeth Short, and they found out who Elizabeth Short was, and they started to see all these threads that they could pull on, and the public was desperate for any information about this woman, that we start to find out that Elizabeth Short wasn't actually the all-American sweetheart that people had wanted to make her out to be, and instead was involved with stuff that represented maybe the worst of Hollywood. That she was a part of this world that Hollywood had been trying to distance itself from. She might have been a sex worker. She didn't hang out with the best people. She wasn't leading this glamorous life. And the public ate that up. And so very soon, we stopped caring about Elizabeth Short, the woman who had fallen on hard times and had been tortured to death. And instead started thinking about her almost in the sense of that she brought it on herself, right? That she almost deserved it, that she had made better choices with her time, with her life, that she wouldn't have found herself in this situation where she's being tortured to death by some sociopath. And we just don't care about her anymore. Another example I can give you is a guy named Martin Burton. Martin Bergen is a much less famous case than Elizabeth Schwartz. Bergen was a baseball player. He was a catcher for the Boston Bee Eaters. He died in January 1900. So, psychology then, and our understanding of mental health then, compared to now, is very different, right? Over a century later, we have a little bit better of a grasp on it, but very little. So I can't say with 100% certainty that this is true, but I think it's probably true that Martin Bergen had paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, Bergen, like I said, he played for the Boston Bean Eaters. He was a catcher, and by all accounts, he was an amazing player. He had a solid arm. He was just great at his job. And so because he was so talented on the field, his uh, eccentricities off the field were tolerated. Um, he attacked his teammates in the clubhouse after one game because he thought they were conspiring to kill him. There was one game where he, refre- he refused to turn sideways because he was always uh, he was defending a knife attack, I think it was. Um, a game where every time the pitcher threw to him, he, he didn't catch it because he was defending himself from something. He was paranoid about being attacked constantly. Doctors tried to give him medicine, but he wouldn't take it because he thought that was poison. He wouldn't accept anything that his wife might give him because he thought that they might be trying to poison him through her. And he didn't want his death to be something that weighed on her shoulders if she was unwittingly poisoning him. And so one day, January 1900, uh, Martin Bergen wakes up. He, uh, they think, was going to put wood on the fire in their home. He takes a hatchet. He murders his children. He murders his wife. And then he cuts his throat with such force that he almost decapitated himself. So imagine that, right? Imagine that pain. 
that Martin Bergen was in, that fear that he was experiencing, that anger, the intensity of those emotions that he was going through, that he almost cut his own head off. That's hard. That's intense. And so I think about Martin Bergen and I think about professional athletes today and how little regard we have for their mental health and how while we obviously know more about paranoid schizophrenia than we might have 119 years ago, it's not completely outside the realm of possibility to think that professional athlete in any of the major sports in the United States or really in any sport in the world might have their problems ignored because they're good at what they're doing. You know, I think about guys who have left the NFL who have taken their own lives and died by suicide, who have shown signs of CTE. I think about Chris Benoit. I think that there's a, an interesting parallel between Bergen and Benoit. I think about players who didn't show any sort of mental health problems during their playing days, but whose mental health declines after they leave the court because either they don't feel that sense of community anymore and they've been forgotten about, or because the physical pain is catching up to them and that physical pain can be such a grind on somebody's mental health, or both. And it brings me back to this idea of we just don't care about people at all. We care about what they're doing with their bodies, but we don't care about them as people. And so I have these ghosts now. <laughs> I have these people that I think about. I think about what did they represent? I think about what did Martin Bergen mean? What did Elizabeth Short mean? I think about Elizabeth Short's mother, who found out that she died when a newspaper reporter called her at her home asking about Elizabeth and told her mom that Elizabeth had won a beauty pageant and he was writing a profile about her for the paper. And so her mother is so happy and she gives all, all this information and the reporter concludes the interview by saying, by the way, she's dead. Um, and basically just hangs up the phone. So we don't care, you know? Um, and I don't have any kind of solution to this other than care about your people, right? I'm not, I'm not sitting here with all this build up to say, and then we need to do this, right? We just need to be more cognizant and more aware of how we're using people for entertainment, what we're expecting of people, and that people are people, right? Not just bodies who are there to do stuff for us. So there's this responsibility that I have to share their stories and try to remind ourselves, remind all of us, remind me too, as somebody who deals with this stuff regularly, that maybe our jobs are done better if we focus on the people and less on the bodies. I don't know. I also like the idea of this show being about resilience. And I want to say thank you publicly to a colleague of mine who I was talking about the Play for Progress project with on Twitter, Dr. Rebecca Stone, who didn't warn me away necessarily from the idea of focusing so much on redemption because redemption is another thing that I think about a lot, but wanted me to focus on resilience. And I've been thinking a lot about that conversation and I want to say thank you a lot, sincerely, for steering me in this direction. That I think that creating a forum or just this small little podcast talking about mental health and, and normalizing mental health issues 
and sharing these stories, right? Talking about the Martin Bergens and the Elizabeth Schwartz and all of the other people who have suffered needlessly and and died painfully. I think that there's some power to that, you know? I think that there is some resilience to be found there. There's some strength to be found there. There's There's something positive that can come out of this pain all these years later. If for no other reason than, I mean, it's cliche to say that it shows us that we're not alone in going through all of this, but I don't know, sometimes the cliche works, right? Maybe it's that simple. I don't know. So along those lines, you know, I want to talk about resiliency more and not just redemption. And I want to talk about how the struggles and the suffering and all of the stuff that we go through makes us stronger but not like physical strength, but almost hardens us in some way. I don't know. I think about a a story, I think about a a piece of advice that a friend of mine gave me when I was going through the very early stages of the tenure track process. And so for those of you who aren't academics, um, the tenure track is a terrible experience overall. Maybe it's something that I'll look back on much, much later in life and, and laugh about or think fondly about but I really doubt that a lot Uh, but anyway I was having I was having a bad night and I was talking to a friend of mine about it he he was trying to give me some kind of analogy about fire sharpening a sword and so that's what I'm thinking about right now when we're thinking about resilience and how these stories can maybe sharpen all of us that Maybe hearing these stories out loud can help people better combat these issues in their own lives or confront these issues in their own lives. I don't know. It's something that I've seen in classes, though. And so maybe there is something to this. I've talked about mental health in classes before and had students thank me for being open about my own anxiety issues. I've talked about sobriety in class before. And I've had students be very, very grateful Um, to hear that it's possible, which is rare. And so I share that story about the sword, that kind of rough analogy that my friend gave me, because I think, I think, we might talk about him next week. Next week will be the third anniversary of his death. Um, I tell... The story about him in my class is something that I've done every semester since he died uh, as a way to pay my respect to him, to say goodbye to him, to both honor his memory and to maybe, I don't want to say provide a warning, but I think there is some of that there. So. Maybe next week is the week that we talk about Scott and we say goodbye to Scott together. Or maybe something else happens in the next six days that makes me change my mind, which is something that Scott would appreciate too. So thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week.